Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on May 31st, 2016, and is titled Time to Choose, a social cinema screening, and features Charles Ferguson, director and writer of Time to Choose, and winner of the 2011 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, Inside Job, James Hansen, director of the program in Client Science, Awareness, and Solutions, at Columbia University's Earth Institute, Vishan Chakrabarti, founder of the Partnership for Architecture and Urbanism, and Sharon E. Burke, senior advisor of the Resource Security Program at New America. What I would like to do is start with Charles and get you to tell us a little bit about the film about making it and there were I had a lot of observations in watching it that I that I'd like to ask you about um, thank you thank you Margaret I should recognize Margaret and Tyler from New America who helped put this on and also Ken Sofer who's in the back who worked with us so thank you very much for recognizing them all right you've made some really interesting films in the past as well including on Iraq which uh, since I was working at the State Department at the time that you made it uh, had a big impact on everyone I worked with, uh, what made you decide to do a film on climate change? What, what came to you? Why this? Uh, well, I, I met someone who uh, knows a lot about the area, and, uh, and what I found most interesting and important was his assertion to me at the time, at a time when I knew very little about this subject. Um, that it was a solvable problem. Um, like everybody else, I had, well, not everybody, but like many people, I had seen an inconvenient truth when it came out. And I came out of that film thinking, you know, this is a really serious problem, and there's apparently nothing whatsoever we can do about it unless we go back to the Stone Age. And so, gee. Um, and uh, it was impressive to hear this very knowledgeable, very intelligent, very sophisticated man uh, tell me several years ago that that was no longer true, that in fact this was a completely solvable problem and that if we solved it, we'd probably end up having better lives than we currently do. So that's what led me to make the film. Can you, can you share with us who that is? It's oh, yes, I'm sorry. It's not a secret at all. His name is Tom Dinwiddie, and he became an investor in the film. Uh, he... Uh, he's a very impressive man. He, uh, two master's degrees, one in architecture, one in uh, mechanical engineering. Um, became uh, an architect in the technical side of architecture, which led him to the energy systems of buildings, which eventually led him to solar power, which eventually led him to start and run a solar power company. Uh, and, and then he sold that, and after he did that, he decided to devote the rest of his life to addressing this problem in various ways. And he's very active in many organizations on many fronts. Well, this was a beautiful film. Um, and it was also told with a lot of great storytelling verve, lots of different stories. Um, so it was a very entertaining film as well. But no one makes a film like this just to be entertaining. Um, surely you want to have an, an effect. And I would venture a guess that most people who are here tonight agree with the premise of the film, felt energized by it, um, came here for that reason. Do you, you know, at making a film like this, 
what are you hoping to get out of it? Are you hoping to make everybody in this room more active and committed than they are? Who do you want to reach? Like, what's, I mean, I, I mean, obviously what the challenge I'm getting at is how do you reach all the people who don't believe it, don't feel activated by it, and won't necessarily voluntarily come to see your film? How do you affect change? Um, those are all serious and difficult questions. Uh, everybody who's making a film or tries to communicate about this subject in some way throws their dart at some particular set of targets, you know, and, uh, and I faced, and anybody who does that faces many, many, many questions. Um, and you can't cover everything and you can't appeal to everybody. And so I, I made my particular set of choices. I tried to make the film uh, in an apolitical way, in a way that was independent of you know, what your political beliefs are about many different subjects. Um, I tried to have it appeal to people at an individual level as well as with regard to their political and social beliefs. You know, that uh, here were things you could do that would improve your life, make your life healthier, enable you to save money, you know, uh, things like that. Uh, and of course, well, not of course, I, I tried to make it a global film. You know, climate change means, and the problem and addressing it mean very, very different things in the United States, in Brazil, in Kenya, in Nigeria, in, you know, many different parts of the world. And I tried to convey that. Uh, there are many things that I left out. You know, I, I left out many important subjects. I left out many important nations. India is discussed only very briefly. Russia is not discussed at all. Saudi Arabia is not discussed at all. You know, these are major countries uh, in this in these issues. So, I I tried. Well, no, I mean you obviously picked very powerful stories in here. And in fact, maybe you can tell us more about the actual process of making this film, uh, because there are a number of stories that can't have been easy to, to get. Um, how did you get the footage in China? Um, how did you evade the law in Indonesia? Uh, even, how did you find people in West Virginia where you know, a lot of the jobs in that community depend on that industry who were willing to talk to you openly like this? Tell us a little bit about the process of making a film like this. Making this film was, uh, in some ways, the most demanding and difficult thing I've ever done. And, and you know, I've not lived a simple, <laughs> unchallenging life. I mean, the first documentary film I made, I, I made in 2006 in Iraq. And I spent a month in Iraq, including two weeks in Baghdad in April of 2006. And as you know, that was, you know, not too many people making movies on the streets of Baghdad then, to put it very mildly. Um, but first of all, the, the subject in this case is enormously dauntingly complex. Many, many technologies, many geographies, many political and social issues, many economic issues, many academic disciplines. It's uh, many languages, many cultures, many political systems that are quite different. Um, and so there was a lot of learning to do, for one thing. I would I would say that just you know, kind of drinking from the fire hose for the first six months was very important, very interesting, very demanding. Um, it, it helped that I'd had an academic background and had once written a PhD thesis that was 454 pages long. Um, uh, there was, so there was a lot of learning to do and I, I felt very 
blessed and fortunate that I was able to do it in the way that I was. You know, if, if you're making a documentary film and you have to some degree uh, a reputation in doing so uh, in that field, then, you know, I, I can call up anybody I want in the whole planet and most of them are willing to talk to me. And, and that was... Um, that was an extraordinary experience. Uh, the operational difficulties of making the film were daunting, you know. Uh, and and I wish I wish that I could convey that more here, you know. I, so I, I'm sure that watching what you saw from the footage from Indonesia, you know, you got some sense of what that was like, but. Believe me, if you're in the plane, uh, I, people had told me about burning season in Indonesia. Many people in the environmental world know about it at some level. And they told me, you know, it's really intense. It's really intense. But nothing prepared me for it. Nothing prepared me for it. So we couldn't even get into the region for five days because all the airports were closed. And the reason they were closed is because the smoke is so dense that you literally can't see more than 100 meters away. Uh, and so every now and then there would be a temporary break in the smoke and uh, they would let a few planes, you know, take off and land. And it literally took us five days just to get a plane for the 500 miles to get us to where we were going. And when we got there, I mean, I, no plane in the United States would be permitted to take off and land in what we saw. And then, you know, so everything was illegal. Um, we were there without a journalist visa. Uh, engaging in journalism without a journalist visa is a crime in Indonesia, is a crime punishable by five years in prison. While we were there, two French journalists were being tried for this crime and for doing really quite innocuous things relative to what we were doing. Aerial filming is prohibited. Uh, for aerial filming, you have to have the permission of the landowner and also uh, permission of the military and a military escort. And needless to say, we had none of those things. Um, so the one great thing about a thoroughly, completely, obscenely, horrifyingly corrupt society, which Indonesia is, is that you can buy anything. <laughs> and so <laughs> we bought it. <laughs> so, you know, uh, we filed fake flight plans and and we got a actually a very part of it was not money part of it was somebody who uh, I have to be careful here somebody who was an executive in a relevant place who was sympathetic to our cause who helped a lot of things happen and then on the ground just paying off a lot of people uh, but you know being in that plane we were in that plane I was in that plane the whole time and by the way, I don't know how much time anybody here has spent in Indonesia, but if you spend some time in that society, your confidence in the quality of maintenance of small propeller planes, it was scary. Um, and I was in that plane, we were all in that plane for five hours. And what you saw on the screen, we saw that for five hours hours. That's a lot of burning. And, you know, I've never seen anything like that in my life. The only, and I've never seen images anywhere that 
remotely compared to what I saw. The only thing that I've seen ever in my life that remotely compared to this was images that I've seen. Uh, Werner Herzog, who's a friend of mine, filmmaker, made a film once about the oil fires in Iraq. And so, you know, it was like that. Yeah, I'd, um, as a government official, I've done an overflight of the Niger Delta. Um, and there's lots of uh, illegal oil stills there. And yep. it's, it's a pretty nauseating uh, view as well. But also, they're all illegal. But no one is in the least bit troubled that there are planes flying overhead viewing it. So, which tells you again that corruption. So it's not just an environmental problem, it's a governance problem. It's one of the messages I took away from your film, is that fair? Totally, totally. I, I, I was stunned at the degree to which the climate problem and addressing the climate problem is inextricably bound up with uh, corruption and inequality in a very deep way. And yet, I, is it fair to say that you made a hopeful film? You wanted this to be a hopeful film. Why, why did you make that choice? And do you, I mean, you obviously believe that or you wouldn't have made a film that way. Why was that the takeaway? Well, I, I came to believe it in the first place. In the second place, um, I, well, this is maybe why I came to believe it, is I, I, I do think that there is a groundswell throughout the world, not just in the United States, um, to, first of all, of resistance against various aspects of the status quo in energy and related matters. And secondly, um, I think that the word about the alternative is beginning to spread. And, and I, think that, um, I think that that tide is inevitable and positive in the long run. The question is whether it's gonna get there fast enough. Um, I wanna bring our other panelists into the conversation and, and by all means, you don't necessarily need me to moderate, but, um, but I, I will. Um, now, Vishan, you have a very hopeful message too, so I'm gonna skip you for a second. And uh, Dr. Hansen, I just wanna quote something you said recently about the Paris climate talks, and you forgive me, but, but I, I wanna ask you if you're hopeful too. You said it was a fraud, really, a fake. It's just bullshit for them to say, we'll have a two degree Celsius warming target and then try to do a little better every five years. It's just worthless words. There's no action, just promises. Is that how you feel and how does that relate to the film we just saw? Yeah, yeah that's absolutely uh, correct. Uh, let me first say a word, though. I really, there were some things about this film that I really liked. It, it really took me back over the last 10 or 12 years of my life. There was a very dapper scientist quote yeah. you were interviewed in well, the Well, you know, I got started in this when after, when I gave a talk at Virginia Tech, and the students who picked me up, this was about 2000, this was about a, 10, 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and the students who picked me up from the airport uh, had told me about the mountaintop removal and, and suggested that I meet Larry Gibson, who was a, this little guy about four, five foot, four inches tall and who was, uh, had a cabin on Caford Mountain. And he refused to sell his property to uh, the coal company, uh, Peabody Coal. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I did, anyway, it ended up finally, uh, and it, I, I realized how awful it was, uh, this mountaintop removal, and what it was doing to the health of the people there. And there was uh, this sludge pond located over top of uh, elementary school. Was, so there was a 
very, and it was an earthen-based thing. There's no concrete or anything. It's just, so if you get a very heavy rainfall, the whole thing can just collapse. Anyway, so my first arrest <laughs> was when I uh, was reading uh, a, a uh, uh, statement in front of the coal company asking them to provide the funding for a new elementary school. And anyway, that was, that was, that was my first arrest, which got me down this path. And it went through other things, too. I then my th fourth or fifth arrest was with tar sands, where I made the foolish attempt to try to influence the Alberta government's decisions, uh, their, uh, their approval of additional and expansion of the tar sands. And, and all I got out of it was uh, when I was walking down the street after testifying, one of the guys came up, to, one of the people who was on the board that had to make this decision, he came up and said he wanted to shake my hand. Well, that's nice, but uh, let, let me now say that, and the one thing I'm disappointed about the film is it doesn't tell us about the solution. You know, the, the fundamental fact, as certain as the law of gravity, is that as long as fossil fuels are allowed to be the cheapest energy for the purposes that the, it energy is expanding, and we did ha have an interesting statement in the film by India. They said, we're gonna double our coal use. Other people in all these countries have the right to aspire to higher standards of living, and they do. And if they don't have better alternatives, they're gonna do it the way that we did. And that's burning fossil fuels. So the way that you have to address this problem is make the price of fossil fuels honest. Make it include their cost to society. And that, uh, you know, the human health effects of this pollution, which is pretty terrible, which does reduce the uh, life expectancy in China by more than five years, and in India it's now going to be worse than in, in China. But that's just the human health thing. That the, the climate costs are already beginning to be significant and they're going to be enormous. If we don't get on a different path quickly, and this Paris thing is not gonna do anything to put us on a different path. It's just a precatory statement, wishful thinking. Uh, there is nothing to cause a change in uh, this path that the world is on. Uh, but, if we, if we stay on this path much longer, we're very close to locking in sea level rise of several meters. And this film did a really good job of saying what the impact of that is. More than half of the largest cities in the world are on coastlines. So the economic costs of that are almost incalculable. So what should you do? You have to put a, you can't suddenly double the price or triple the price of fossil fuels. There's no way to do that. And, and it would destroy economies. It would be too big a shock. But you can have a gradually rising fee on, on carbon. 
and it should be across the board, oil, gas, and coal, and it's very easy to collect. There are a number of domestic mines and ports of entry where we import oil or, uh, is small. So there is an organization, Citizens Climate Lobby, which has that as its sole objective. And that is, uh, it's a nonpartisan group which is now is working very hard to uh, recruit Republicans, conservatives, and, and, uh, and it's easier to <laughs> convert uh, the liberals. So, you, and, and that is an essential part of the solution. And the other, and, and the U.S. has to take the lead. We're responsible for the problem. China now has much higher emissions than us, but on a per capita, what causes climate change is not today's emissions. It's the cumulative emissions because the carbon stays in the system for millennia. So, per, uh, cumulative emissions, the United States is 10 times as responsible as China and 25 times more responsible than an Indian citizen. So we have to be uh, the leaders. And um, so, the other thing, so the other thing that I'm trying to do is uh, we've, uh, with a, a number of young people, we filed a, a legal case against the federal government for not doing its job and protecting the rights of young people to a future. And I think between these two things, we may have a chance because we, the, if the court comes back the way it did in the case of civil rights, and tell, the court can't solve the problem, but it can tell the government, you're not so, doing your job, You've got to come back and give us a plan which actually uh, will do the job and will phase down U.S. emissions at a rate consistent with what the science says should happen. So that's the So if we have, but we we have to get this uh, understanding that you can't solve the problem by by just telling people, oh, there are other good things you can do. Uh, you actually have to affect the economic system. And that means via the price on carbon. And it's not good enough. And I've sat down with Jerry Brown and talked with him. And, and, and I think I persuaded him that California's plan is not going to be, uh, it, it reduces emissions somewhat. But it's not anywhere like what is needed. And so I called it with him, in the, I called it a half-baked, half-assed program with him in the front row uh, when I was speaking. And he just laughed, and we had good discussions after that. And, but he, if they had only started with a carbon fee instead of cap-and-trade, which is very ineffectual, it's got, anyway, there's, there's a lot of other stuff. We I can think talk I've more said. about it. I, I want to ask you one personal question uh, before we come to the, the next points. But um, just... You know, when you were a newly minted PhD physicist and you went to work at NASA eventually, um, which is certainly when I first became familiar with you in the 80s, um, is this what the future you saw for yourself, suing the government, insulting the governor of California, <laughs> um, you know, uh, getting no, arrested, no. having an arrest record at this point in your life? And could you tell us a little bit about your personal journey and how you got uh, to this point? Yeah, you know, I'm... I'm one of the uh, co-plaintiffs on this lawsuit against Obama and the federal government is my oldest grandchild, Sophie. And we're starting to work on a book this summer 
Um, and I will give some of the, how I got to this point. I, I was really extremely lucky um, to be born where I was, in western Iowa, a very conservative uh, red part of the state. But um, at a time when uh, uh, young people could go to college without mortgaging their future, you know, we, um, and I just so happened to go to the University of Iowa, Professor Van Allen, a famous uh, physicist who discovered the radiation belts around the Earth, um, had uh, the physics department, and, and um, so I learned, and I think it's going to be very relevant because to this discussion in this movie, because what I learned was how to how science works and you you have to, and how you have to be objective it's you have to give equal side equal weight and you have to question your own conclusions all the time whenever there's a new piece of data you have to question your conclusions and um, the story is not as simple as some of the people in this movie tried to make it appear that we have the solution. We're not going to have a solution until we get a price on carbon. But it, I, I will try to make that whole story clearer because I was led to it step by step um, after um, you know, seeing what happened when you know, I had the opportunity to speak with Vice President Cheney and his, he was the head of the, this uh, Bush's Climate and Energy Task Force. And I think it was just energy, <laughs> sorry. I'd, well, I'll yeah, so anyway, part I, of it. I, I, it's hard to make the story clear to these people. And finally, I think I'm beginning to understand that I'm going to try to make it clear in this next book. That's great. The generational link, I think, is really important. And I, um, I want to get to Vishan, although, I, Charles, I also want to give you a chance to, to comment. In, in the military, they call strategy ends, ways, and means. And so you need to know what the end is, and the end is a decarbonized economy. And the means and the ways are two different things, right? And I think what you showed us is the means are there. And what Dr. Hansen is talking about is the ways. So I, don't, I don't, so I don't think they're necessarily incompatible. I think you did show a, a true story, and the question is, um, there are other pieces. Um, Vishan, so I want to quote something you said. You said, cities are the last and best hope for humanity in terms of climate change, social mobility, getting through our cultural and racial divides. What made you say that? Uh, so uh, I'm an architect. I work mainly, I've lived mainly in New York City. I was born in Calcutta, and uh, I... You know, and I, I worked both as an architect and as an urban planner uh, in this city. And so what I'm interested in is, is, is maybe a slightly different aspect of this, which is um, the end user, if you will, which is all of us. Uh, in the sense that, uh, so if you think about population, we're about 7 billion people on this planet. If you read the work of uh, Dr. Hansen's uh, colleagues uh, at the Earth Institute, you might believe that the population is going to level off somewhere around 10 billion by the end of this century. 
And people believe, I think, and you should correct me if I'm wrong about this, that that 10 million number is going to level off because the world is actually getting wealthier. We've had probably about 2 billion people move out of poverty and into the middle class throughout China, throughout India, throughout Brazil, many other countries. And so as an architect, my question is sort of, well, how are those 10 billion people going to reside in some kind of harmony with this planet? And, you know, the first thing we cannot do is wish those people away. And this is an interesting, I think it was around 2007 or 2008, there was this incredibly sort of hand-wringing article in The New Yorker about the fact that, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet now and, you know, all those folks in India and Africa can't control themselves. Um, and, you know, this is very dangerous. Human history is pockmarked with very, very dangerous moments when we started believing that we as humans were the problem. And yet humans are clearly the source of climate change. And so the question is, how can we live in a way that stabilizes the situation in the long term? I couldn't agree more that we need a price on carbon. And I, I actually liked what Governor Brown said at the end of the film about an integrated solution that is trying to get at both the supply side and the demand side. And the demand side, because we're the end users, so look, we, can we all stipulate that the fossil fuel industry is bad guys and like we all have to go after them with every possible bone in our being? But okay, after we stipulate that, we also have to confess that it's more comfortable in this room with that air conditioner on. And we are, chair, and we, we are the end users. And what's interesting to me is, um, so as a person who, who sort of traveled as a child back and forth between kind of liberal Boston and village India, that, so my father was born in a village that's the most sustainable net zero place you can imagine. There's not a single windmill, there's not a single solar panel. The, the place produces no garbage. And I'm telling you, as beautiful as a place it is, as it is, it is not a place where you wanna live, it's not a place where you wanna raise your child, it's not a place where you want your parent to grow old. We can't romanticize this issue. There is a reason that all of those people want a better lifestyle for themselves, right? And, and these are life and death issues for many people. So the question is, how do you create a balance? So in India, um, you have, for instance, 2,000 people a day moving to Mumbai, right? We are, so we are vastly urbanizing as a planet, and our cities are a big hot mess. Um, and it's because we are, they're designed atrociously. We don't invest enough in our infrastructure. Most of the growth in most of the uh, uh, cities that are in those countries that are growing are car-based, as the film points out, uh, is car-based. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm very skeptical of technological panaceas. This is another place where human history is not, like, has shown a lot of problems. And so, I love the film, my one, the one thing that caused a reaction in my mind is when there was a moment when the electric car is introduced when it says electric cars don't pollute. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, doesn't, that matter what, doesn't it matter what they're plugged into? Because, and this is a very American thing, right? We don't feel good about something, so let's buy our way out of the problem, right? So we'll buy a Tesla. The problem is in many, many parts of the country, including the Northeast, all you're doing is you're shifting your, your emissions from your tailpipe to a coal-powered uh, uh, power plant. Or gas. Or gas, right? 
And so, you know, and maybe the emissions level is lower, maybe it's still uh, better, but, the, but, you know, I believe fundamentally, and I'm getting to the city's question, which is that we should all be living in more dense, more walkable uh, circumstances, whether that's New York City or a small village in the middle of Iowa. Both of those places, and I don't mean a suburb, by the way, outside of Des Moines, I mean a small village, right? Because if you look at those two places, what they have in common is most people can walk or take mass transit in the majority of, to the majority of places that they're trying to go. Because again, if you look at the end user, the fossil fuel industry isn't doing this because like there's no marketplace. The, what's the marketplace? The marketplace are buildings and cars. Those are the majority of the things that are using all this fossil fuel. And you know, I'm, I'm really, and I, I don't think the film did this, but I think there are people who somehow believe that you can take your McMansion, strap a bunch of solar panels to it, or strap a windmill to it, put a Tesla in your, part, in your garage, and it's all gonna be okay. That you don't have to eat any spinach, you can just keep you know, living the life you've always led without any contemplation of what that McMansion is doing to the land around it, the highways, and, and then finally getting to this point of pricing carbon. And I, I wrote a book in 2013 called The Country of Cities that is all about this. It tries to unpack the level of subsidization that has gone into the American suburban landscape, which I believe is the primary culprit behind most of this. That basically, you know, people say, well, cities are heat islands. And I said, well, compared to what? You know, if New York City is, an eight, is a heat island of eight or nine million people, well, what form of habitation is going to make them a more sustainable group of eight or nine million people? Because what I do know is, is the average New Yorker, we use far less energy per capita, and I'm so glad Dr. Hansen brought up this issue of per capita, because we don't talk about this enough, that we use far less energy in this city per capita than the average American. And that's not because we're angels, it's because we walk and we use mass transit. And I think that this is a fundamental issue, not only because of what it means here, but because we have to be leaders. And what I see an awful lot of people doing around the world is as they attain middle-class status, which is a great thing, that they want what we have, right? So you've talked about your plane flight in Indonesia. One of the scariest plane flights I ever took was a low-flying low uh, flight in Riyadh. Uh, in the deserts of Riyadh, which were being cut up into suburban subdivisions, just like what you'd see outside of Phoenix. Well, gee, where'd they get that idea? And the problem is, if six or seven billion people try to live the way a few hundred million people live in the West, we're absolutely screwed. And I don't believe that simply, fossil, simply solar panels and, and, and Teslas are going to do it. I think we, re, we have to rethink human habitation in the, in the course of this. And I'll close with this last thing, that the suburbs were, is not a natural course of events and it is not a natural result of market forces. It was a completely subsidized, government-dominated, fossil fuel industry-dominated invention. And it took hold in this country in the way cancer spreads through a lung. And just as when you quit smoking and slowly the pollutants leave your lungs, I would argue that with a new set of, uh, of, of government policies, which I think a lot of millennials and empty nesters and others are striving for, that we could remove those pollutants from the lung. 
and we can also set an example for around the world. So that so that's my perspective from the end user. Um, because it is, it's a really interesting conversation that the three of you are having, and I'm and and especially because I would like to give you a chance to react to each other as well. Please, uh, you're going to have a very hard time persuading uh, Chinese and other people to not have this desire for personal mobility. I find that it doesn't matter where you go, it's not just Americans, but, you know, they, they, and they're, they're, even when they have these big traffic jams, they still uh, like this. So we really need, if we want to solve the climate problem, we don't have time to try to persuade the U.S. to change our, although I agree with what you're saying, but in order to get there, what we need is this rising price on carbon and therefore on fossil fuels, therefore it will put the pressure to have your, it, it will make it right, and it will, it will discourage uh, this sprawl, uh, but you, you, I think the way we have to get there is via a price on carbon. What do you think about that, Charles, and about, especially about people in China and the people that you talk to? Um, well, uh, I guess one thing to say is, is that I, I think that for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, the three of us are in that condition known as violent agreement. Um, not entirely, you know, I, there are some respects in which I sense in, in a couple of cases know that, that we differ. There are, you know, significant differences of opinion among people who are committed to solving these problems. And one thing that I tried to do in the film, frankly, was avoid those. <laughs> um, so there's nothing in the film about biofuels, for example, and the, you know, there's nothing in the film about nuclear power, which I know Dr. Hansen favors. Uh, I, the, the omission of carbon taxes from the film was just a matter of simplicity. I, you know, I actually did very long, detailed interviews with um, a number of economists about the carbon tax issue. Uh, I'm in favor of carbon taxes. I agree that you know it would be a good thing to have them. They are not a panacea. There are a number of problems that they do not address. There are some problems that cannot be addressed through individual choice that require collective action and government policy and regulation and force in the first place. In the second place, uh, they're very difficult to implement in some important areas. There are some things where they're very easy. Uh, oil imports, you know, oil's easy. Um, but uh, land use is not easy. Carbon taxes with regard to land use, very complicated. Very complicated. And land use is important. Land use is like a third of the problem. So, not really. Um, well, here we have another... A third difference. of the solution. We're, well, we're, we're actually the, right now the land a, a third use of the, is sucking a, up carbon at a very high rate, which is, surprises the science. Yeah. And it can be much better. And if we once had a price on carbon, it would be much easier to get it to suck up more. It, it is both part of the problem and part of the solution, and a, a big part of both. No question about that. No question about that. Um, but a, a, a simple tax on carbon would not stop deforestation. No, but it's on, say, require underlying policy. Dr. Hansen. If you don't have it, you, you have nothing. Dr. Hansen. Um, well, so you see there are differences within the climate community. Um, 
I am optimistic, I would say, that there is a, again, it's a question of rates. Will it be fast enough? Will it be in time? But, but everywhere I went, uh, and in every zone that I, that I speak to, um, which was a lot, uh, I saw a recognition that the kind of cities that the Chinese have built over the last 20 years are not inhabitable. And, and in fact, uh, another area where central government decision-making is important, and it's not just a matter of carbon taxes, very recently, Peter Calthorpe told me that uh, at an extremely high level, the Central Committee of the Chinese government has made a decision that they're going to stop building cities like that, and they're going to mandate something much closer to his recommendations. And, and I see that not just at high government levels, I see it in, you know, people like to live in cities now, again. And so, is it gonna come fast enough? I don't know, you know. But I, I'm optimistic about the direction in which we're going. We're, we only have a few minutes left, so if you wanna compose some final thoughts, and Sean, in particular, that was a good segue to you, you know, in particular about cities. And there were some interesting images in the film uh, of what we used to call leapfrogging, like technology leapfrogging, where you saw people in Kenya and in Bangladesh uh, adopting other ways of getting the electricity they didn't have. Um, is that viable? Is that hopeful? And that's a way to bring people in? Yeah, so, I, so what, I, what I'm actually very interested in is how do you combine a lot of the technologies that the film discusses with denser urban living and this notion of taxing, I think I, I think it really does need to be an all of the above strategy. Uh, I don't think one thing gets us there, given the the scale of the problem and the speed of the problem. The thing that's interesting to me is is also that I'm so glad you in, included Mayor Lerner in the film. Um, I've met him a couple of times, and he's an extraordinary guy. Mayors, I believe, are at the absolute front line. Uh, because, you know, when we talk about a carbon tax, right, we're, we're talking about everyone's gas going up by however many dollars a gallon, which I think it should. I only talk about a revenue neutral carbon fee, <clears throat> not a tax. Okay, I'm, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I know I'm gonna lose that argument, so I'm not even gonna go there. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say, point that at, at, point or, at some point or another, the end user is gonna high, encourage higher prices. Right, which I believe in, because that's going to get them out of their cars more. It's going to get them into more uh, greener homes and so forth. But what I think is really interesting about the mayors is we've seen these failures at the national governmental level time and time again. And yet the mayors, I think, are so important because they control things at a scale that's enormously important. So when Mayor Bloomberg does a bunch of stuff, when Mayor Garcetti does a bunch of stuff, Right? And you know, one of the problems we have is in places like in India, you actually have very weak kind of municipal governance to deal with these issues. Everything's handled at the state or federal level. And so, you know, yes, it's great that China can do that from this top-down level and they can just decide, well, we're gonna build cities that are green starting tomorrow. But you know, in most of the free world, we can't do that. We operate and live in a democracy. And I think that the mayors are the people that are putting the biggest dent in the problem, it seems to me, at scale. 
as someone who lives in Washington, D.C., I can tell you it's not happening there. Um, Dr. Hansen, we're just out of time, but did you want to make a last comment for this audience? Uh, yeah, if you want to, well, you know, people ask me, can I do something? And I say, well, the one thing you can do is, is uh, become more of a vegetarian. You don't have to become completely vegetarian. Because that, there's no negative feedback. It's, it's totally uh, helpful to the planet. <clears throat> On the other hand, if you just say, oh, I'm going to stop using my car, I'm going to drive a bicycle, it doesn't help much because it just makes the fuel cheaper for somebody else to burn it. So you, we've got to actually get this price on on, uh, on carbon, and that's why if you really want to do something and you have time, uh, join Citizens Climate Lobby. <laughs> and Charles, the film opens officially this Friday, is that right? In New York City, yes, and then one week later in a number of other places. Anything else, last words for the audience? Uh, thank you all for coming, and, and, uh, and Yes, there is a lively debate within the environmental community about which of these things to do and at what rate. Um, but I, I think that's a good thing. It's a debate we have to have. Um, so thank you all for coming, and uh, please come again. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.